This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Hi, I'm Roisin Ingle and you are very welcome to Back to Yours, a podcast where I talk to some big names about their houses, go and have a snoop in their drawers and find out all about the homes they've lived in throughout their lives. Let's be honest, we've all got a bit of a nosy streak. I know I definitely have. And this is a chance to hear how some very interesting people live. Coming up in season one, I'm going to go back to yours with Amy Huberman, Dolly Alderton and Dermot Bannon. But today I am talking to best-selling author John Boyne, who came to worldwide attention with his book, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. I call it the house that Bruno built, which is probably a bit terrible, but you know, in my head I call it that. So. He was a bookseller in Dublin when he quit his job to write full-time, a very canny move as it turned out. He now lives in a detached house in a leafy cul-de-sac in Rathfarnham in Dublin, in the place his family calls the Boyne Triangle, because they all live so close to each other. I think you are going to enjoy going back to yours with John Boyne, and we started with a little tour of his gaff. So John, here we are in your house. Tell yes. me all about it. Well, we're in the living room now, yeah. which is um, probably where I spend most of my time. Yeah. And as you'll see as you go around the house, the books that I have, yeah. uh, because I'm a former bookseller, uh, I have a very specific arrangement. Okay. okay? <laughs> so here is the, the Irish section. Right. I see Roddy um, Doyle. And, yeah. yeah. And um, it's uh, it's alphabetical by author and then chronological within that. Oh, God. So, okay. because there's, well, there's almost 3,000 <laughs> books in this house. Right. But I can find any book I want. Because of that immediately. system. That I, yeah, because of my okay. system. Okay. Like, I wanted, I wanted everything in the house to be useful, but um, beautiful as well. Mm. You know, there shouldn't be anything that isn't there for a reason, I feel. So it has a good function and it also looks good as yes, well. Yes, much like myself. Okay, so. excellent. Well, let's wander out. Uh, we go out into your little courtyard. Okay. This is where I read outside when it's a nice sunny day. Sort of like a rattan like sort of chair. swinging chair. Yeah, an egg chair, and it's just yeah. really, really comfortable okay. to sit in and you know, Lovely. sit there and read. And there's a nice little space down the end for hosting. Oh, yeah. Wild parties here, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if I had any friends, that's where I'd host them. Okay, good. Um, and then this room. <laughs> so this is a shomra. Yes. This is something like it's, you know, we used to have sheds and now we have shomras. Now we have shomras. Yeah. And this room I built out the back as kind of a, as an office to work in in the summer. But it's also where I keep all the copies of my own books, all the right. foreign translations. So when you want to feel good about yourself. Yeah, I call it the ego room. Here. Ego room. Yeah. Okay, just come in here. So everything in here is, 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 is written by me. So Now you so. have like specific pens and sharpies and things are you yeah. a pen person I am you a very I'm a stationary person you're a stationary person okay. uh, I Tell like fountain I like fountain pens yeah and I like nice notebooks down here uh, I have a whole you know bunch of notebooks and I always have a notebook on the desk okay. where I'll make um whatever you know scribbles that okay. I'm scribbling away on but yeah are you I, very particular because this desk looks so neat with everything seems to be very much in its place is yeah. that your kind of yeah style I, I I'm a very neat ordered human being okay. I don't like mess so we're going out of your little green shomer bit and okay. then there's a there's another bit of the shomer now which yes. is a bit more active well yes I mean obviously this is the room I use the most because it's the gym <laughs> so I'm in here 24 <laughs> 7 I, I uh, wish there was clothes hanging on it to make it like it's not it looks like oh. you kind of do use it though I do you? use it I do use it I have a, a treadmill and I have a uh, elliptical and then they both face a big screen so I can watch movies. well actually what I tend to do is 
I watch really? foreign movies, foreign language movies when I'm on the gym. And the reason I do is because they're on subtitles and it's actually quite noisy, ah. the thing. So if you watch a regular movie, it's, right. um, it, kind of, it's, it can be hard to listen to. Back into your lovely living room with the beautiful books and a kind of a, a, a lovely sort of nook for sitting in the window there. Yeah, window really, seat, um, yeah. Which, is, which is very comfortable. And underneath there, actually, there's a, a cabinet that opens and that's where all the TV stuff is all hidden away, like the sky box and the... Um, so all the bits that's and pieces why you don't see all so you don't, yeah, you don't the see rest anything. of us have in our it's house all, around it's all hidden, yeah. you know. and your TV sorry I have to tell everybody it's <laughs> giant how big uh, is it it's 78 inches so it's okay. a big it's a big screen was that important to you then I'm obviously have... overcompensating for something I don't know um, <laughs> well I guess I you know I like watching movies and it, it was a good use for the wall I mean it's like a, so it's a home cinema isn't basically it basically really? it is yeah, yeah. Or we'll move into the uh, hallway. And you do have lots of, I mean, some people would call them knickknacks, yeah. but they're mm -hmm. kind of cool. They're not, they're, it doesn't look too cluttered, but you obviously like to see. Yeah, all these the things. things I've generally picked up, because I, I do um, a lot of book tours and a lot of book festivals around the world. Uh, they're things I pick up around the way. That shark is from a uh, gallery in Sydney. Little things that, I've, that I find along the way. And some of them are worth, like, you know, maybe a fiver. Yeah. And some of them are worth but 50 they, good. You they know, have that memory for yeah, you. They evoke just, a kind of time and yeah, place. Yeah, and they just make me like remember a place or a time so I'm very jealous of this room John all I can say it feels like almost womb like it's pink it's got books everywhere and then a beautiful curved kind of desk with your yeah. laptop so this is where the magic happens this is where I generally write yeah. uh, in this room a lot of the cabinets you have have different kind of drawers and knobs yeah. and things they're not mm -hmm. just you know usual kind of um, yeah. sideboards um, or yeah and it's like it's a good place to keep you know that's like you know wallets and passports and um, checkbook and that one and you know, stamps and keys and so on. So, honestly, got that. Mary Kondo would love you. I'm so worried. I have a little, I mean, this is going to make me sound completely crazy, but I have like a list on my computer so I know where everything is. So, if I say I want blue tack, you know, I can look it up and I'll know it's in the one. Jenna's <laughs> just laughing at me because I'm sounding like an idiot, but um, I know exactly where to find things. So, we're just going up the stairs, and again, there's a uh, Skylights, and then you've very cleverly used the top half of the wall for the bookshelves. Yes. And there's a ladder, so it's like one of those... A ladder of... to the sky, one might say. Um, <laughs> well, this was, you know, it had a regular ceiling up until about 18 months ago. But then I took out the ceiling and put in, these, put in the, 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 the skylights, uh, which brought in so much light, and then put these shelves going all the way up to the top, and then the ladder. Yeah. I was actually in a shameless name dropping. I was in Cecilia Ahern's house. Right. And she has a ladder. Okay. In her in her library, did she robbed the idea of you. Or no, she. she I robbed it of her. Okay. I thought, oh, that's so cool. I thought I always wanted a ladder, and that's I know that cool. you know eventually one day I'll be up there and like tumble down and that's yeah, how I'll yeah. Die. <laughs> I'll fall down the <laughs> What stairs. a way to go, though, John. You know, well, uh, they, they say he died the way he would have wanted to go, shelving his books alphabetically <laughs> and chronologically. Um, <laughs> this is the guest room. Okay, so this is where I'll be staying when you yeah, know we come for the wild party. The room. Okay. Um, <laughs> And oh. uh, I try to discourage guests, to be Did honest, you? because it's so nice. I, like when if they stay, then I've got to change the sheets and everything, you know. So I mean, it's, I prefer to bring guests to show them the room and say, you know, if you weren't staying in a hotel, this is where I, you could have stayed. Yeah. The house feels very comfortable, like a very kind of relaxing place. Like you know, you you can see there's all these little spaces that you've created where you can be here on your own, and you work here as well. Yeah. So that's well, I think if you work from home, yeah. you have to do that with your house. Right. You have to make it. You have to make it comfortable. You have to make, you don't want to ever get up and think, oh my God, I have to get out of this place. You know, mm. um, you want to feel that actually it's the place you most want to be. Right. Uh, and, and also you have to make it interesting. So there is such a lot of points of interest with your 
little objects and yeah, and just different places to be, so you yeah. don't feel um, you don't claustrophobic or bored. You know, place, so. Yeah. But I am very much a home person. Like you know, I'd rather be here now than anywhere. And um, I don't get, uh, I don't long to be outside. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happiest kind of here. Well, I think now we could go and sit down and have a chat. Okay. About why you've made your home the way you have. That was a lovely little tour. Thank you very much. Um, this house looked very different before. So can you tell me a bit about why you gave it such a huge transformation? Yeah, um, my partner and I moved in here in 2008. And uh, unfortunately, that relationship came to an end in 2016. Okay, so you and, were married? Yeah. And um, when he moved out, I, I just, it was a very low period of my life. You know, it wasn't um, a choice I had made. And um I didn't want to leave the house. It was like the, the place of greatest safety and security to me. Um, but every everything in the house really had memories and every corner of it. Um, and I, you know, I just thought, well, it's, I can change it completely. You know, I can just, the walls, you can't change the walls outside, but everything inside you literally can't change. You can knock everything down and use it, like start from scratch, make it a complete blank slate and start over, um, which is what I did. Every, every room that you're in today, um, looked completely different. Some were, in, some were bigger, some were smaller. You know, walls were in different places. Uh, even when um, my, my ex has, has been here on occasion um, over the last couple of years, he's just like, wow, you know, this is, you've really done something amazing with this. And it, it, it was two things. It was one was um, being able to kind of clear out those memories. And the other thing was just giving myself a task, really, you know, giving myself something to get stuck into. And I, honestly, I was never a big interior design guy. Uh, I, it wasn't really something I was all that obsessed by. But when I started to do it, and when I started working with Caroline Flannery, and um, she sort of introduced me to like websites that, where you could get interesting things and you know just different types of colour schemes and different ways you can look at the house. And I guess the creative part of my brain just took over then. And I just thought, wow, actually, I can have a lot of fun with this. And, you know, just really put my heart and soul into it. And and then it became, you know, like a basically kind of like a two-year project. Um, it took a long time to, like I was doing it in, uh, the first stage I did was the biggest one. But then it was things like, you know, doing the skylights upstairs, putting the showmer outside. Um, I, I kind of feel like I, I don't have anything left to do, which is a bit annoying. I'd like to, you know, because I enjoy the project <laughs> yeah, element yeah. of it and saying, okay, well, you know, what fun can I have with this? Yeah. Um, sometimes I think it might be fun to build a basement. Um, but I don't know what I'd do down there. I just think I'd probably put a slide, you know, and slide <laughs> slide down to it. But, um, or a fireman's pole. You know, yeah, okay. Um, Interesting. So. Um, you, you talked about the relationship ending wasn't your choice. And mm. so you've you've spoken before about how you were come back from a holiday and your partner basically said that, you know, they wanted the relationship to end, which is a devastating thing, which many people relate to. And I've heard that and yeah. unfortunately been on, on the wrong side of that. It's it's really unpleasant. Did Did home feel... Uh, like a lonely place then? Uh, yeah, it did. Uh, I can remember like the day that um, I opened up the wardrobe and his clothes weren't there and just, you know, almost like howling in um, pain. And um, I guess I thought in that first year or so that it was all going to work out in the end, really, you know, um, and then uh, it didn't. And unfortunately, in fact, as as we're sitting here recording this, is a Monday and on Wednesday is the day that the actual... Um, divorce happens in the court so I'm only 48 hours away from that so um but you know that's okay it's uh, you know I'm three years down to it and uh, accepted it and in a way the closure will probably be a good thing at that point but yeah it it it, it felt lonely because we we put so much into this together in many ways he was much more involved I would say in 
um, the DIY element in the in all those years we were together here. He was much more into the garden, for example, um, which I'm not really a garden guy, and um, he he would he he was very good at sort of like the. I guess with the traditional man's job, sort of, you know, like you know, he was good with his with tools and with painting and all that sort of stuff. And I was always hopeless with that kind of thing. So it was kind of tasks, things that I had to really learn to be self sufficient on, and that I suppose I should be self sufficient on. So you know, from that, for those things, um, it's it's probably good that I can do those kind of things now. What's your favourite space in the house? Um, I suppose I I do like this living area. You know, I. So much happens here. You know, I, I eat here, I cook here, I watch TV here and I read here. And it's the room I'm most in. Uh, on sunny days, I love being out in that Shomra. Um, it's so beautiful out there and you can look down the garden. And, you know, if we have, again, if we have a good summer, I can work outside in the garden. I, I like being outside. I um, I like just fresh air and stuff. So uh, the more time I can spend outside, I try to read outside as much as I can. I have a little table out there I can, I've often sat and worked on my laptop on. Um but I, I like it all, really. I, there's, um, I guess anything I don't like, I, I get to work on yeah. and, and fix, you know, and change. And I always wanted a, a, a wood-burning stove. Yeah. I'd always wanted one of those. And that was the first, I think that was one of the, outside of the books thing, that was the one thing I'd said to Caroline, I really want a wood-burning stove. And you're happy and, with that. You're yeah. happy, it makes you happy to, to light that. And yeah, and, yeah, and it's so it. easy to do. And, you know, when I got it first, it took me ages, you know, to figure out how to, <laughs> to light a fire. Um, I was like rubbing stones together and blowing on them and things. But um, now I can do it like, you know, in 20 seconds, you know, and, and, and it lights, you know, it's just one of those tricks. You tricks pick it up, you, you figure out how yeah. to, to lay the, the wood so that it, uh, it, it catches. You never thought of selling the house? No. No, I, I didn't because, I mean, firstly, I, I love it. It's it's a beautiful, like, detached house in a cul-de-sac. You're not going to find that kind of thing somewhere else. My parents live 10 minutes away. My sisters live five minutes away. Uh, we call it the Boeing Triangle, you know, the, the area <laughs> we live in. And, like, we know there's such a housing crisis that, uh, you know, I, I got lucky finding this house in the first place. Um, and I just couldn't... Um, imagine leaving it uh, you know a, a lot of that i think comes from childhood in a way you, see, you know the way when you're a kid some kids um are constantly moving house and some kids never do i, I never did you know my i grew the house i grew up in in sandyford uh, was the house i was born into and my parents still live there whereas you know there'd be friends who would you know move every sort of three or four years and it's just a different kind of mindset and i think because um i had always lived in the one house in some way my head was that when you get a house that's your house, you know, and you, you stay there. And um, I don't like always want to be wanting more in a way. Escape the Ordinary with Green and Blacks, sponsor of Back to Yours. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Discover your favourite flavour from the range, which includes 70% cocoa, roasted almond, salted caramel, sea salt and mint. You were an altar boy and very involved in the Catholic Church. You mentioned the priests there and the nuns. So looking back at that time of your life, what's what are your memories and your coming to realise and, and to be quite critical eventually well, of the church? Um, well, I remember it being a place I felt I really belonged, the altar boys. You know, it was um, th- that social aspect of it. I remember like every Friday we would have our meetings down at St. Olaf's School and um, and... It just felt, I felt I belonged there more than I felt in school. I was a very kind of shy kid and uh, I, I wasn't comfortable always in school. I always felt sort of like the nerdy kid at the back of the room that was reading books and wasn't very sporty and so on. Whereas in the altar boys, I, I sort of felt I had 
I sort of belonged there in some way. And my best friend still to this day is, you know, we met when we were seven in Alter Boys. And um, so it was it was something I really liked. And, and I guess then you look back later and you think, well, it's it's such a shame that, like I mean, when I wrote History of Loneliness and I was interviewing priests um, for, for the book and you find like that they don't really have those organizations anymore because they can't really. And it's a, it's a tragedy in itself that, that you can't, um, have things like that anymore because obviously priests don't want to put themselves in any, and quite rightly, in any position of where something troublesome can happen. Um, like you never know, like somebody who's completely innocent of anything, you know, it's just too, you're in too vulnerable position. It's like teachers keeping the door of the classroom open all the time if you're on your own with a kid. It's just too dangerous to do otherwise. Um, so I think it's a shame, but it's a shame that they brought upon themselves, obviously. But I, I, I do remember it as being um, a time where I felt very included in things. Which is interesting because then as a gay man, realising that you were actually excluded, did that kind of, did you remember kind of really feeling like that? The, the church was sort of a home, a sort of a place of sanctuary and yeah. security. And then realising that that was also a rejection of who you were. Well, well the thing was, I wasn't really religious at all. You know, I didn't. I, I I, I, well, I wasn't, you know, I mean, the, the ultimate was just, a social organization. Yeah, you could have been the scouts or could have been. Yeah, that was all yeah. it was. Uh, I, I was, there was never a religious bone in my body. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was about going onto the stage or the altar <laughs> and uh, <laughs> giving myself away there. And, you know, and you had a routine and you had to do, you know, ring the bell at this time and you, you wore your outfit and you, you know, it was, it was quite theatrical. And, you know, there is that element to myself, I guess. And, but it wasn't, I wasn't like sitting there thinking about the mysteries of, of the universe and, you know, God and things that wasn't really it wasn't on my mind in the slightest bit so once you know I was I don't know 11 or 12 and left the altar boys uh, I never I, like, I didn't give mass at church a second thought and I would still go to mass as you did in those days but I stopped going to mass about 15 or 16 because um, it didn't it just didn't interest me I wasn't particularly anti-religious or anti-catholic or anything it was just I was just bored by it you know I just felt we were sitting there just you know saying the same responses and nobody was thinking about anything or what they're going to have for the dinner and so on. And um, it didn't hold any interest to me. And it was only later then, as I got into my 20s, I think, that I then started to feel, you know, as in university and so on, and you start to see, you know, as I came out and everything and realising the way the country was run then by the church and the government that where, you know, it was still, you know, when I was in Trinity, it was still illegal in theory to be, you could still be prosecuted uh, for, for, for being gay or at least for acting upon it. And then you start to get a bit more angry about it and you say, well, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm a grown man, I can do whatever I want. Um, but it didn't affect those memories of childhood particularly because I just didn't associate those memories with religion. Like you say, I could, it could have been the Scouts. So you went away to college, when you were in college in Trinity, and which weren't the best years of, of kind of the way some people really embrace it yeah. and really enjoy it. I didn't have a great time there. I, I Again, it was, um, I was still quite shy and insecure. And then I, uh, when, when I went to UEA, that's, you know, when I was 22 in Norwich. And that's where I kind of came out of my shell more. I, you know, by that stage, I was like, I would start telling people I was gay. I was ready to have relationships. And when I landed in Norwich, I thought, right, well, nobody knows me here. Um, let's, you're starting with a blank slate. And and I just threw myself into it with gusto. Was that then the time when you really got to know yourself and sort of express yourself as, as a person? Yeah. More yeah, because they, Trinity like, or? you know, the friends I had in, in Trinity, were most of them were people I had also known in school, so had known me for a long time as well. Nobody knew me in Norwich. 
um, I could, you know, reinvent myself completely, and which is what I did, you know. And, and also it was quite nice being Irish there. You know, most of the students were English. So I was kind of the exotic stranger. And, <laughs> um, and, and I just, you know, by that stage, I was just ready to socialize, to have fun, you know, to, to you know, be gay, yeah. um, to, to drink, you know, to, to write. I was young, ambitious and, you know, upright. Yeah. So. I came back to Dublin and I started working in Waterstones on Dawson Street, uh, which isn't there anymore, unfortunately. I got a flat on Pier Street. Uh, at the end of Pier Street, Westland Square. Um, and uh, and again, you know, I think of it now, that would have been like, I don't know, 1996. And, you know, I was like a, a, a junior bookseller and I could afford a beautiful apartment with, you know, a separate living, dining, bedroom, ensuite, um, five minutes walk into work. Um, you can't even imagine that now at all. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even hard to find. You know, I can remember looking, going down to one of those places on Dawson Street, the apartment finders places, and they gave me like three or four places to look at. And I could have taken any one of them. You know, they were all available. Now you put that online and, you know, you'd have queues going down to, you know, Trinity and around the corner. And you were writing all the way through this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I so wrote my first, first novel while I, um, The Thief of Time, in that apartment. And I think maybe Catherine and Kevin moved in together then. And I moved to, again, back down to Pear Street. Uh, with another friend of mine from the shop. Um, and I stayed there until I left Waterstones. Okay. And you left lane, Waterstones when you were writing your third book? Yeah, in, 2000, in January 2003, uh, I was writing Crippen. Uh, I'd been there for seven years. Were, this was your third book. So were you getting frustrated at this point, like that things hadn't maybe happened in a, a bigger way? I mean, you weren't selling no, loads? No, I, I wasn't frustrated because, yeah, I mean, my first two books did not sell particularly well and they didn't get a lot of attention. But... I didn't expect them to, you know, now you know, new Irish novels get a lot of attention very quickly and um, are, are always like the greatest novel ever written again, you know, and, um, but for me, it was, I was getting published. I was the furthest thing from frustrated that you could be. It was like, I was delighted. Um, I just, I wasn't expecting what I think a lot of people expect now and think is their due now. I was just happy to be published. Um, but after seven years of working in the shop and I'd been promoted and, um, I was manager and it was just taking up so much of my time. And, you know, there was like 40 people working there and there was problems after problem after problem every day. And, you know, I was ending up working like 12 hour days. And I, I just reached that point where I was just burnt out, you know, and I just, you know, to be honest, I just freaked out one day. I was in the pub after work with some of them. And um, I can remember it was 20th of January, 2003. And we were in the Duke and there was seven or eight different people from the shop and every one of them was complaining about work, every one of them. And, you know, all the things they hated. All And I just saw red, you know, and I just thought, why are we, like, we're all sitting here complaining, you're all complaining and nobody is doing anything to change. If you hate your life that much, you know, do something to change it. And I literally took the keys out of my pocket, put them on the table and said, no. I'm out of here. I went home and I emailed the area manager and I said, I quit. I'm not coming back. And I never walked back into the shop. Oh, you never even went in as a punter? Like? Nope. Never went back in. And so what were you, how were you going to live? How were you going to, you know, make a living? I'd saved up, you know, I had, um, I had money saved from my job. I'd also got my advances from my first two books. I had enough to survive about a year. I had maybe about sort of 10 grand, 15 grand. Um, and I had also um, been, I'd been knocked down actually about uh, eight months earlier. I, I'd been knocked off my bike. And um, I, I got some compensation for that. And I had enough to get me through a year. 
So I moved down to Wexford. Uh, but that was a Monday and by Friday I was living in Wexford. But how did you choose Wexford and how does that happen? Because when I was a kid, we always used to go to Wexford on our summer holidays. Yeah. And I always had such great times there. And I just knew I, after seven years, I just wanted to get out of Dublin. I needed to get out of Dublin. I was not happy there. Um, you know, the job had gone, you know, badly at the end there. And I'd had some, as we all do in our twenties, you know, just relationships yeah. that um, hadn't worked out and that would upset me. And I just felt like I needed to get away and be somewhere. And I rented a house down on the beach in um, Blackwater. Oh, right. Is and that where um, Colm Tobin wrote his book about Blackwater Lightship? Uh, Isn't that Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would, be, yeah. that would be down there. It's and, beautiful um, there. Of course, you know, you've got three from Wexford. You've got Colm, you've got John yeah, Banville, you've got Owen Colfer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and was it from, actually on the beach? Yeah, you could oh, go around beautiful. the, um, well, you would literally just turn around a road and at the back of my house and then you could walk down onto the beach. I would go down there every day and go for a swim. And I, I rented like, a beautiful house and again for for not very much money had it all to myself and wrote my third book and just decided to write now is the time to say be a, a full-time writer and devote myself to this and it was a good year it was a weird year in a way because after seven years in the shop and leaving in such a dramatic you know flouncing out as I did <laughs> um it, it, it was it was quite upsetting for a little bit you know it was like oh my god what have I done you know and um it's it's not a normal way to to quit, but it was the, it was just the right thing to do, you know. By that point, I guess it's you know you've done school, you've done university, you've worked, you've tried to get published, you got published, and it just was a year to just sort of like breathe and say, you know, I have enough money to last me through for a year or so, and let's hope mm. it all works out. What, were you there when you had the idea for the boy in striped pajamas? Uh, no, I wasn't. It was I'd stayed down there for a year, and then a year was enough, you know, and I wanted to come back up to Dublin then. So I got a uh, apartment in Milltown, um, just before the Milltown Bridge, which is a really nice little apartment. And the last apartment, in fact, that I ever lived in before I bought. And it was there that I, I had the idea uh, for Striped Pajamas. And it's there that I, I wrote um, Striped Pajamas, the first draft, over, over three days. And everything changed in my life after Sorry, that. I'm making so. sick, sick making faces yeah. at John here, you know, being very jealous, writes this incredible thing. Well, actually, I'm, it, it wasn't quite three days, it was two and a half. Oh, <laughs> you see, I thought you were going to make it better. And do you remember actually kind of conceiving it? Was it one of those light bulb yeah, things? Yeah, it was. It was, you know, I, I, I get ideas a lot and I have notebooks filled with ideas, you know, and I, I always say to like young writers and so on that if you're reading all the time and writing all the time, your, your brain is open to ideas, you know, you're, you're a sponge for that. So, um, and I just had this image in my head of two boys sitting on either side of a fence talking to each other. And I knew immediately where the fence was. And this was on a, you know, on a, um, a Tuesday night that I had that idea and um, I was going to bed. I had just finished a draft of what became Next of Kin, uh, my fourth, well, I guess my fifth published novel because it came out just immediately after Striped Pajamas. But, um, and I was at that moment where I had finished the first draft and I was taking like a few weeks break before going back to, to work on it. And, um, and I thought, well, I'll just start writing. I didn't know if it was a short story or what it was. And I'd never thought about writing for young readers. And I sat down on the Wednesday morning and I started writing. And as Wednesday went on, I just was kept writing all day long, um, only stopping between chapters and taking a break. And then at Wednesday night, I thought to myself, if I take, if I take a break from this completely, I'm going to lose this idea. So I wrote all the way through Wednesday night. I wrote through Thursday, wrote through Thursday night. And I finished it on Friday at lunchtime. And... I sat there with like 50,000 words, you know, exhausted, but it felt in that last sort of 18 hours, like it felt like the words were just pouring out of me and I was just tapping away and letting them to go. And I'm, the only real thing I can remember is 
Um, as I say, between chapters, I would take a break, you know, like half an hour, an hour or something. But I can remember sitting on the sofa and saying to myself after about sort of 10 or 11 chapters, don't think about this. Don't think about it at all. Don't analyze it. Don't think what's coming next, what's happening next. Um, just, you know, have a sandwich, watch a bit of telly and, you know, six o'clock, go back and write the next chapter and see what, see what happens. Just don't think about it. Because um, I think if I thought about it, then it would have all fallen apart, you know. And then on that day, which was actually my birthday, the day that I finished, uh, it was my 33rd birthday. And um, I finished, and I can remember, I went out to meet, um, you know, Anne Griffin, uh, who's just published her first novel. I went out because Anne and I have been, she hired me for What is Stones. And I went out, I was meeting her for lunch for my birthday, and I was absolutely exhausted. And I went up to Dunleary to meet her, and, and I told her about um, what I've been doing over the last three days. And she was like, wow, you know, that's, that's kind of mad, you know, three days of writing. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, and I think it's like for young adults. But really what I wanted to do was to go home and go back to the first word and start writing the second draft and see, was there something, I felt like there was something there. You know, I felt like it was, could be something special if I could, you know, whip it into shape. Mm. And you did whip it into I shape. I did whip it into shape. And there was and something very special. Something amazing happened for me. So so would you say this is the house that the boy in striped pajamas bought in a way? I call it the house that Bruno built, which okay. is probably a bit <laughs> terrible. But, you know, in my head, I call it that. So, And now it's out. Of there. It's not just in your head. Yeah. Um, so you're, you had this huge success. And I mean, that those those years after that book came out were, were just, they were life changing for oh, you. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I think between, it came out in January 06 and it was pretty much a three year thing then because including the movie and everything where it was all striped pajamas all the time and I was traveling constantly um suddenly had publishers in lots of different countries and was on constant book tours constant festivals but constantly writing too and from then you know I'd pretty much done kind of a book a year after that and either on the adult side or the kid side and it you know hasn't stopped I just keep doing it I keep traveling and um but those three years were uh it was a whirlwind of stuff. It was just constant. But it was amazing. You know, it was such an exciting time. And um, not every writer gets one of those moments in life where a book, you know, like A Stripe Pajamas or a, or a Curious Incident or a P.S. I Love You, something that really, or the commitments, you know, those books that just capture the imagination and seem to transcend the world of books themselves that, that people people who don't read know of them and have heard of them, the Da Vinci Code, like, thing, you know, those kind of books that you just know what they are. Um, it was incredible. It was so much fun. And it was, you know, it was also very, you know, after all those years of wanting to be a writer and getting published, it was finally validation in some way that, that, that I wasn't a complete lunatic, that I had some ability in it. And, and then it opened up all the opportunities that came afterwards for me in, in terms of what I wanted to write. And, and then, I, you know, I was really part of the literary world. I made lots, most of my good friends, you know, are writers and people that I met around the world. And um, it, it gave me the chance to be the person I always wanted to be. Mm. Just on that writing world, you've been kind of critical in the past about the Dublin scene, you know, and the fact that it's quite um, self-congratulatory. Would that be mm. fair enough for that there's cliques and there's people moving around? Are, do, you, do you still feel that way? And what do you think um, is, is unhelpful about that? Or, or well, not I, I think there's, there's very little um, cri- critical qualities going on. I, 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 don't, I don't see why, you know, it seems to me sometimes that every book is the greatest novel ever written and every writer is the greatest writer in the history of the universe. And um, I think I think the hyperbole isn't great. You know, every book can't be the best book ever written. I, I don't see why, why, why we cannot judge things more sensibly and say, you know, like a novel can be just actually really good, a really good first novel, um, and be very interesting to see what they do next. You know, and I think sometimes the hype 
um, is too much. I don't think it does the writers any favors. I don't think it does readers any favors. Um, I know from like hearing it from people that seeing the same names quoted all the time on book jackets, always saying, you know, an instant classic for a book that came out last Thursday. You know, I mean, you go, give me a break. You know, and it's all sort of friends all, you know, complimenting each other. And um, there's a dishonesty to it, I think. You know, like, I don't give that many quotes, but the quotes that I give are for things I really, really like. Whereas uh, there are people that will, they just give quotes to 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 their, their little gang. And, um, you know, I think sometimes then we end up in a celebration of mediocrity. But, you know, I don't make myself very popular for saying those <laughs> things. But, you know, I don't care. I'm not like, you know, 25 and wanting to be part of, you know, the gang. I don't really care anymore. Um, some of these books are good, yeah. but they're not, you know... I just don't see why everything has to be so overhyped. You work at home. What is it that you need in order to sit down and have everything uh, flow for you? Do you know, increasingly now, because I'm 47, um, a clear calendar. There is nothing... I, I remember reading Colin Sabine once saying that um, he never meets people for lunch. You know, he hates the idea of that, like breaking up the day. It's a waste of time. You know, increasingly, I find if I look at my calendar and I see I've got a few days or a week, there's nothing on the calendar. You know, I, I almost cry with happiness. Um, and I think as I'm, you know, over the next few years, I, I kind of want to slow down on the traveling a lot, you know, and because um, it's exhausting and uh, you're kind of, you're always kind of on, you know, and lunches and dinners with people and people are very nice, you know, but um, I don't feel like I'm building a career anymore. I'm sort of, in the middle of it. And uh, I just kind of want to be at home and read and write and, you know, hopefully find a new partner. And um, I, I, I kind of don't, like, I don't go out to things very much. I don't really do book launches and all that sort of stuff. I, um, I'd be happy enough to kind of just do festivals in Ireland and England, really, because they're, they're, they're close at hand, or Australia, because I love Australia. You mentioned finding another partner. Um, these days, it seems to be like it has to be on apps. Is that yes. kind of the way that you're doing? Yeah, yeah, I'm... I'm Tindering away. And, oh, yeah? um, How's that going for you? Uh, you know, I mean, I go on dates and things and um, haven't haven't found the right person yet. But, you know, I keep trying. I've had those awkward moments where somebody, I was on a date not so long ago where the, where the guy was, we were sitting in a bar somewhere and um, he said to me, I have to tell you, um, uh, when I was in school, you came and gave a talk to our class. And I just oh! went, I know, and I just went, <laughs> I'm sorry, how old are you? And, you know, I sort of finished my drink and said, oh, I think I'm going to go. It's my train. <laughs> you know, you just, and you just, you just feel like Michael Jackson, you know. Oh, I mean, it's just terrible. Um, talk about a mood killer. <laughs> I've had to kind of change my, my, twi- my Tinder um, age group things, you know, from whatever it was to what it is now. I've, I've upped it a bit. The slight problem with it is that if you go on a date with somebody, and I'm not trying to sound like arrogant here, but they're going to know more about me than I'm going to know about them. That is a little bit awkward in its way. You know, like when you meet somebody for the first, when you go on a blind date, you want to be able to kind of say, so what do you do? Tell me about yourself, you know. And if somebody already knows a certain amount about you and then, you know, has maybe Googled stuff and they know your whole life story basically before you tell them it, that can be a little bit um, weird in its way. But I mean, look, there's nothing I can do about that, but 
It's it's just a little bit weird at times. Sometimes you feel like you're doing an interview. You know, somebody said to me not too long ago, I, I read that you really like going to Australia. And I, I did feel like I was doing an interview. I, I was listening to um, Marion Fanukin last week and Roddy Doyle was on it. And he said that, you know, at one point when he was traveling so much, uh, he was away so much that he got home and came into the house and his wife said to him, hey, how are you? And he, and he said, uh, I'm very well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here in Dublin. You know, and I just thought it was absolutely hilarious. And it's, it's that kind of thing, though, where you, you just go, oh, no, wait a second. I'm not being, I'm not being interviewed. You know, it's, uh, this is actually my yeah, wife my, or um, yeah. this is a person I'm on a date with. But when they say something, I read that you this. And mm. you go, well, I, don't, I haven't read anything about you, you know. Um, so that can be a little bit tricky. But um, look, you know. It's, it's okay at the same time. I don't mean, I'm not bloody Colin Farrell here. You went through some dark times when your relationship ended here, but do you feel like, did you successfully banish kind of memories you were trying to um, erase? Um, I don't think I ever will. Uh, I think anybody who goes through, uh, on either side of a relationship, a breakup after such a time when you are, you're, you're being human if you didn't have some type of emotion to it. Um, those feelings will never go away. Uh, I still feel, you know, great affection for my for my 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 ex. And uh, while we're not really talking now, is you know maybe you know five years down the line, you know maybe we'll be able to talk again. But um, I feel I have banished a lot of it. You know, I'm definitely in a better place than I was. Uh, it's it, it reached a point where I thought I, you've simply got to accept that this is the case and get on with your life and you can be sad and you can be angry and you know you can cry when you want to cry but you still got a lot of life left in you and um you can be miserable for the rest of your life or you can at least try and pick yourself up off the ground and so uh, but i would like to meet somebody else but i'm not locked into it i don't think like we should be defined by having to be with somebody else it's um but i i feel i like being in, in a relationship and i like I like the kind of caring and love and affection and, you know, sitting watching The Apprentice together type thing. You know, I, I like that. I like, I'm not looking for, um, uh, I'm not looking for great excitement in my life. I'm looking for, <laughs> like, I, I get a lot of excitement in my life if, if I want to go out and get it, you know, um, in terms of my work. And um, it's just nice, to, it would be nice to have somebody to kind of cook a meal with in the evening and sit and watch TV with. That's, mm. that's I, I think, you know, the best part of being in a relationship. What does home mean to you now? What does it uh, yeah. Safety and security; those two things. You know, um, like when I like when I made good money from striped pajamas, I put it all into the house. You know, I cleared the mortgage. I thought that's the like nobody can take it away from you. You know, and again, that's a reason that I would never move. Like I own it. Nobody can take this. If everything in my life goes wrong, um, I have this building, and I can lock myself away in it, and nobody can get to me. Um, safety and security, and that's. You know, it's the most important thing to me. That was John Boyne there. And thanks very much to John for letting us into his gorgeous home. And thanks for listening. I'm Roisin Ingle. And remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends about the podcast. Next time, my guest on Back to Yours is the talented and very funny columnist and author and Londoner, Dolly Alderton. I had a friend come here for a party and he said, he went to the bathroom in the kitchen and he said, I can see why you've only Instagrammed the bedroom, the living room. 